Welcome to Current Radio's Politics Station. Please enjoy today's selection of political news. In a significant shift from the 2019 pro-democracy landslide, Hong Kong has just held its first Patriots-only district council election. Abby, what's your take on this? It's a startling change, Michael. This new electoral system announced last May has made it nearly impossible for pro-democracy candidates to get on the ballot. Indeed, Abby. Out of 470 seats, only 88 will be directly elected, and the candidates for these seats need to be approved by government-appointed committees. It's a significant shift from the previous system. And let's not forget, Michael, that over 70% of these candidates are members of the vetting committees themselves. It's a system that's been criticized for shutting out pro-democracy voices, even moderates. Yes, the Democratic Party, Hong Kong's largest opposition party, didn't secure nominations for any of its candidates. This is a stark contrast to the 2019 elections where pro-democracy candidates had their biggest win. That's right. The 2019 election saw a record 71% voter turnout. Fast forward to today, and we're seeing a voter turnout of just over 6% as of 10.30 a.m. That's a significant drop, isn't it? It certainly is, Abby. And despite officials insisting that turnout will not determine the success of the election, they've been trying to generate public enthusiasm with free concerts, fun fairs, and even offering community centers payments to encourage the elderly to vote. But Michael, it's not just about the turnout. It's about the voices being heard. With this new system, many Hong Kong residents feel their connection to public sentiment is tenuous at best. That's a valid point, Abby. Finn Lau, a Hong Kong democracy activist based in the United Kingdom, described the latest district council vote as pointless. He said, and I quote, it is a complete joke. It is pointless to vote in such a fully controlled gamed system devised by the Beijing regime and Hong Kong authorities. And it's not just about the election itself, but also the aftermath. Authorities have warned against any attempt to undermine the poll, reportedly deploying more than 12,000 police officers around the city. Yes, and already there have been arrests. Three members of the League of Social Democrats were arrested after announcing plans to stage a protest. On top of that, a 77-year-old man was arrested on suspicion of preparing to carry out sedition over a reported plan to protest the election. So it's clear that the political landscape in Hong Kong is changing rapidly. The question now is, what does this mean for the future of democracy in the region? From the shifting political landscape in Hong Kong, we now turn our attention to another region grappling with its own contentious issues. Let's pivot to the Middle East where the Israeli government is faced with a decision that could have profound implications on its relationship with Palestinian workers from the West Bank. Let's move on to our next topic. It's a contentious one, Abby. The Israeli government is considering allowing Palestinian workers from the West Bank back into Israel. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has requested a discussion on this. Indeed, Michael. It's a decision that's not going to be made lightly. Since the October 7th massacre, and the IDF's Operation Swords of Iron against Hamas, Palestinian workers have been barred from Israel due to security concerns. It's a complex issue, isn't it? On one hand, there's a manpower shortage affecting many industries across the country. But on the other hand, there's the question of national security. It's a real catch-22. Absolutely. And it's not just the security concerns. 
There's also a political angle to this. Finance Minister Bezalel Smotrich and Minister Gideon Saar have both publicly criticized the idea of allowing Palestinian workers back in. Saar's comments were particularly strong. He said, and I quote, These are people who are drowning in incitement and hatred for Israel and the Jews. He's advocating for an increase in foreign workers from friendly nations instead. And let's not forget the local leaders from the West Bank. They're urging Netanyahu to consult with them before making any decisions. It's clear that this is a decision with far-reaching implications. Right. And then there's the potential for an escalation of terror in the West Bank. A security source told Walla that the re-entry of workers could increase hostility and certainly escalate terror. It's a precarious situation, Abby. It certainly is, Michael. The balance between economic necessity and national security is a fine one. And it's a decision that will impact not just the workers and the industries, but the entire region. It's a story we'll continue to watch closely. Absolutely, Abby. It's a complex issue with no easy answers. But it's these kinds of discussions that are crucial to understanding the intricacies of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We'll keep our listeners updated as this story develops. From the complexities of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, let's now turn our attention to another global issue that's making headlines. This time, we're heading to the COP28 summit in Dubai, where protests, freedom of speech, and the climate crisis are all colliding under one roof. Let's dive into the details. Now, Abby, let's shift our focus to the COP28 summit in Dubai. Protests, freedom of speech, and the climate crisis, all under the same roof. What's your take on the situation? Well, Michael, it's a complex scenario. On one hand, we have activists rallying for a variety of causes, climate justice, ceasefire in Gaza, indigenous rights. But on the other hand, the United Arab Emirates' strict regulations seem to be stifling their voices. And it's not just about where they can march or what their signs can say. It's about the very essence of their message. For instance, protesters couldn't even name the states involved in the Gaza conflict. Isn't that... A shocking level of censorship? Yes, that's exactly what Joey Shea from Human Rights Watch pointed out. And it's not just about the UAE. Even the UN has put restrictions on what can be said, like the banning of the slogan, From the River to the Sea. And yet... Despite these restrictions, protesters are finding ways to express their sentiments. They're using symbols of resistance, like the kefia and watermelon signs, to get their message across. Yes, it's a testament to their resilience. And it's not just about the present, it's also about the past and the future. As climate activist Isabella Lopez said, she doesn't want a future where a Palestinian can't remember their history or culture. The same, she says, happened in Mexico. And this brings us to a critical point. These protests are not just about individual causes. They're about the intersection of these issues. Indigenous rights, climate justice, Palestinian rights, they're all interconnected in this fight. Absolutely, Michael. And let's not forget the individuals at the heart of these protests. People like Ahmed Mansour, an Emirati activist, and Allah Abdel Fattah, an Egyptian pro-democracy activist. Both have been jailed for their activism and their names were not allowed to be mentioned during the protests. And therein lies the irony, Abby. A summit aimed at addressing global issues, yet stifling voices that are trying to highlight these very problems. It's like having a convention on fighting the tobacco industry and having the tobacco industry present in a negotiation. As campaigner Nicholas Herringer put it, 
It's like having a fox in the hen house. Well said, Michael. It's a stark reminder of the challenges we face in addressing these critical issues. But as we've seen, these activists aren't backing down. They're finding ways to make their voices heard, despite the restrictions. From the global stage of the COP28 summit, let's bring our focus back to the domestic front. We're going to dive into the political arena now, specifically New York's 3rd Congressional District. A familiar face has re-emerged in the race for the House seat. But before we delve into that, let's take a quick break. Stay tuned. Let's switch gears here and talk about the latest developments in New York's 3rd Congressional District. Former Reps Ever Tom Suozzi is officially running for the House seat left vacant by George Santos. Abby, your thoughts? Well, Michael, this isn't a surprise, is it? Suozzi had already thrown his hat into the ring to challenge Santos in 2024. Now, with Santos' expulsion, he's stepping up earlier than planned. Indeed. And it's interesting how Suozzi is positioning his campaign. He's focusing on what he calls bread-and-butter issues that concern most Americans. Rising living costs, climate change threats, immigration, and global conflicts. Yes, and he's really emphasizing the need to revive the American dream, especially for working-class suburbs. He's talking about hard work leading to a home, education for kids, health insurance, and a fear-free retirement. But he's also acknowledging that people are worried this dream may not be achievable for them. It's a sentiment that resonates with many, no doubt. But Swadzi isn't just focusing on the issues. He's also calling for an end to the increasing polarization in American politics. He said, and I quote, enough of the finger-pointing, enough of the partisanship. It's a bold statement, but it's one that's needed. The question is, can he walk the talk? Can he work with anyone who's willing to solve problems regardless of party lines? Because that's what he's promising. It's certainly a promise that many would like to see fulfilled. But let's not forget, the GOP has yet to announce their nominee. Santos's expulsion has definitely upped the stakes for them in 2024, given their razor-thin majority in the House. Absolutely, Michael. It's a race to watch, and it's going to be intriguing to see how it unfolds. The dynamics of this special election could very well set the tone for the 2024 House races. 